Part 3, Chapter 9 For all of 2014, I had not had a drink. But I wasn't in recovery. I wasn't working any program. I didn't want to change the way I approached my life. I certainly didn't call myself an alcoholic. I didn't want to take on an identity that conjured up an image in my mind of a dependent and unreliable woman with poor judgment. Alcoholic was someone who was out of control, someone living on the edge of society, sleeping on the floor of someone else's apartment, weak-minded. I'd worked my entire life to get away from being an out-of-control person who lived on the edge. I repeated, I will never be like my mom, to myself so often throughout my adult life that it was practically a mantra. But even after months of abstaining from alcohol, I was still living on the edge. Maybe not on the edge of society, but on the edge of something. Of course, before my year of cold turkey abstention, I had decided to give up drinking dozens of times. Usually I decided when I was puking my guts out. Late at night, I would drink until I was sick. Then I'd pass out for a while and wake up and run to the toilet. As I was retching, I felt so physically awful, I told myself I knew that time would be the last time. No more, I would think. But by morning, the thought of a drink came to mind, and I felt no need to resist. My next drink was always on my mind. What do I need to get done today? So when I did stop drinking in 2014, it was because I had been introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. After attending only a few AA meetings, I could no longer deny that alcohol was a problem for me. I couldn't stay sober for more than a few weeks at first. I didn't want to accept this new identity of alcoholic, so I hung out around the edges. As the months passed, it didn't get easier not to drink. I was getting tired, the fatigue steadily eroding my motivation. I was hanging on by my fingertips to the ledge of my alcohol-free streak. My physical dependency on alcohol had left me within just a few days, but the mental obsession pried at my grip. I avoided alcohol, but I didn't have a way to move on from alcohol. I had stopped drinking because I hated the way my life looked and felt when I drank. But here I was, drink-free, and drinking was still at the center of my life, which I hadn't expected. Now that I wasn't drunk every day, I could see that I really shouldn't drink. But it wasn't clear to me that I shouldn't drink forever. I imagined that after a while, circumstances around me would change without me having to do anything else. My relationship would get better on its own. Or maybe I'd become one of those people who didn't need a romantic relationship. I would be financially independent. Sure, I noticed that because I wasn't drinking, I didn't have to deal with being hungover all the time. I noticed that Mark and I didn't fight as much. I didn't have to deal with my shame over what I'd said or done when I was drunk. I didn't have to remember with a pang how insulting I'd been the night before, the hurtful, idiotic things I'd said. But those changes weren't going to be enough to keep me away from drinking forever. If anything, I could use the improvements I'd made as evidence that I wasn't really an alcoholic. To tell myself that I would drink differently once I had everything in my life squared away. I was already bargaining with myself. Every now and then, I'd show up to a recovery meeting, usually after a fight with Mark. I'd sit in those meetings and silently catalog all the ways I didn't fit in with the other people there. 
Even though a meeting would help me get through that day, I still wanted to believe I wasn't one of them. Other times, I plowed some of my obsessive thinking into work and building my business. I'd started my website development business in 2012, and my prices were too low. So I was buried in work, but barely making a profit. The nonstop work did have the benefit of distracting me, and I worked until it was time to go to bed so that I wouldn't drink. I'd pass out from exhaustion instead of alcohol. The constant work wasn't enough to calm my tumultuous third marriage, though. Tumultuous, as in me breaking shit. Throwing stuff, yelling, slamming doors. Not just once, but over and over again until pictures fell off the adjoining wall. Once I had quit drinking, my reason for marrying Mark in the first place became obvious. I no longer needed someone to pay for or tolerate my drinking. My dependency on him slowly evaporated. I'd left Mark briefly about a year after we were married. I signed a six-month lease on an apartment and moved into it one day without warning him. He came to get me, and we moved back in together that same month. But we were constantly fighting and never happy. Even the literal day I married him in February 2011, I could hear a clear voice in my head saying, I don't want to do this, and now it's too late. But I did it. I married him. It was just one more bad decision. When I marry him, things will be different, my brain said. Marrying him will be a fresh start, it said, disregarding the fact that Mark never questioned my drinking and had no problem with the way I drank. What could possibly change? In fact, back then, as I was careening through full-blown alcohol dependency, one of the bright spots about our relationship was that Mark never suggested to me that I had a drinking problem. Not once. Which is really very weird because I was usually drunk when he got home from work. I was in total denial about my drinking problem. So his denial or inability to see my drinking fit right in with what I wanted. Someone who would never question my drinking habits or kick up any of my buried shame. When we would fight, he would bring up past things I'd done or said, or past conversations we'd had together, things that I didn't remember because I'd been drunk. But drinking couldn't be the reason for my memory lapses, I thought. It couldn't be that I was an alcoholic. Instead, I decided I must have early onset Alzheimer's at the age of 42. I found an online diagnostic test that tells you whether you might have Alzheimer's. I know, super reliable. But at the time, I was eager to take it. I passed. No Alzheimer's. That can't be right, I said. There's something wrong with the test. I had Mark take the test. He passed too. I took it again. I passed again. Why don't I remember the things Mark says I've said? I asked myself. That's how badly I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't want alcohol-fueled blackouts to be the reason for my not remembering. Mark never blamed my drinking for my forgetfulness either. Instead, he thought I was a liar. I could live with that label, though, because at least we were joined together in the denial of my alcoholism. He also didn't say anything when I stopped drinking in 2014. At that point, I had no friends at all and no support which was a bed I'd made for myself over many years. I hadn't had big blow-ups with people. I just didn't know how to be a friend to anyone. I didn't show up when friends needed me. I didn't listen. 
and I could only function in relationships where the other person was trying to fix me or save me because I had nothing to bring to the table. That got old really fast for people. My daughters were keeping their distance. Life had become small. In the years before I stopped drinking, I would bring my laptop and sit at a table in the bar area of a local sports bar so that I felt less like a drunk. I'd order food too, so that I could make my day drinking seem somehow more normal. The bartender knew my name and had my beer already poured for me when she came to my table at one in the afternoon. I overtipped. I don't know why. She always seemed like the happiest person to see me that day. Yet when I showed up to an AA meeting, those alcoholics were always happy to see me. They acted like they missed me. As 2014 wore on, I knew I shouldn't drink, but I still wasn't sure if AA was right for me. Part of my mental obsession with drinking led me to think compulsively about whether I might be an alcoholic, and then to think of all the reasons why I definitely wasn't one. I kept attending meetings and eventually strung together several weeks of sobriety, which then turned into months without a drink. But I was hanging on by a thread. My willingness to identify as an alcoholic and commit to a program of recovery was tenuous. My grip on the ledge of abstinence was just about to slip completely. I would have started drinking again at some point that year or the next because I was still in denial. I still believed I could control alcohol in my life. My third marriage wasn't going any better than the rest of my life either. I was still stuck and I was ready to say, fuck it. Mark had his own problems, and denying those took up the bulk of his energy. The times that I'd been to his house before we were married, I could see his problems. They lay in literal piles all over the house. I told myself that Mark was just messy. I'd look at the stacks and stacks of paper. It was hard not to look at them since there was no place to sit unless you first moved a stack of mail and papers and magazines. If there was a magazine, he subscribed to it. They were everywhere. Well, he doesn't collect things, I told myself. He just has a lot of stuff, but it's not obsessive. He certainly did have a lot of stuff. On every flat surface, he had stuff. Table, counters, the stove top. Besides papers, he had dozens and dozens of broken appliances and electronics. He had a gas dryer, next to the electric dryer that actually functioned in the house where we lived. The trash cans were always overflowing, pouring garbage from the top like a bottle of shook up champagne so that each one had a wreath of trash around the base. And that odor, what odor? When I walked into his house, I didn't let the odor penetrate the sentence level of my brain. At the time, I didn't understand anything about hoarding. But when I walked into his house after just a few dates and I saw that garbage everywhere, on every surface, that should have been the end. But it wasn't. I needed a partner and I needed someone who wouldn't question my drinking. Mark filled the bill. Even if I had understood hoarding, I don't think I would have been able to admit to myself at the time that he was a hoarder. I remember the first time my daughters came over. Rachel paused in the doorway and her eyes grew big. What's that smell, she whispered. I bit my lower lip and said nothing. After we got married, 
We had a fight, and I told him I would not move into his house until it was clean. Well, okay, if not clean, then cleaner. He did nothing, so I lived in another house for a while after we were married. I was undergoing my third surgery in three years. The cleaning out process was so emotional for Mark, he couldn't let go of a single item. So I did it for him. I cleaned up his messes, sometimes literally following behind him with a broom and dustpan, cleaning up as soon as he would leave a room. I called a junk collection truck when he was out of the house. They came and removed several truckloads from the basement. As they drove away for the last time, I was dismayed to see they'd barely made a dent. In fact, it was so insignificant that Mark didn't even notice. I was a little elf with a dustpan who rearranged furniture and opened mail so that we didn't miss important bills, just like I'd been as a child around Clotine. The life I'd chosen with Mark was almost too on the nose. Not only did I spend hours and hours of my time each day, each week, trying to clean up a mess that I didn't make and couldn't fix, ironic, I was also constantly fighting with him, trying to force him to see what was in front of his face, but what he would never see. This is crazy, I'd say, as he burst into tears or angrily accused me of trying to steal something away from him. Everything was important, and I was the enemy for wanting to get rid of anything. Take responsibility for this mess, I kept saying, but he refused to admit it was a mess. He didn't willfully refuse. He was just blind to his hoarding being a problem. So even when he cleaned around the edges or consented to me decorating a bit or hanging pictures on the walls, he couldn't really change the way he lived. And that meant I couldn't either. About a year into our marriage, I heard a radio segment about hoarding. The expert talked about the fact that hoarding was not a personality problem or a bad habit. It was a mental illness. No amount of persuading or confrontation would change that. They even talked about the fact that researchers had found real visible differences in the brain scans of hoarders versus non-hoarders. The click inside my brain was almost audible. Mark has a disability, I said to myself. My job isn't to force him to take responsibility because he can't. It was the first time I ever considered letting go of the job of trying to get him to be different but I didn't let go of the hope that we could stay married. I didn't want to be divorced for a third time. I didn't see it at the time, but this realization made a huge dent in the way I thought about Clotine's behavior and eventually in the way I thought about my own. I was so busy in my adult life with getting other people to behave themselves, to act right. I made it my mission to bring Tim's abuser to some kind of justice. I got my master's in social work because I wanted to help people. Here I was now, literally chasing my husband around with a broom and dustpan. When I listened to that radio story, it was the first time I thought to myself, what if I just stopped? And that realization became key to all the ways in which my life would change a few months later. Meanwhile, Mark was suspicious of me. I often had no income during our marriage, and he accused me of using him or trying to steal his money. I kept trying to talk Mark out of it. That's where we were in October 2014.